Hello and welcome to another episode of Working Overtime, the bi-weekly advice-focused 2023 Fraser reboot to Working's Cheers, which somehow has never been rebooted. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I'm your other host, Nate Chenen. So, June, what are we talking about today? Well, Nate, in earlier Working Overtime episodes, we've talked about consuming art in the service of creativity, things like breaking down articles or songs to learn from them and things like that. But today, I want to talk about bringing our creative skills and talents to actually experiencing art. I recently read Rick Rubin's book, The Creative Act, A Way of Being. And in it, Rubin talks about creativity as a fundamental aspect of being human. He says, creativity is about paying attention and taking pains to perceive the world in fresh ways. What's more, it's not necessarily about making things. And I think for a lot of people, that's the goal or, you know, maybe even the fantasy, having a book full of poems or a collection of completed journals or maybe even a shelf full of published books. But Rubin says that isn't the purpose of creativity. At one point, he says, we tend to think of the artist's work as the output. The real work of the artist is a way of being in the world. Mm. And so one of the ways of being in the world as an artist that Rubin describes is being someone who experiences art or nature or even interpersonal communication deeply, being someone who really listens and sees. And I was happy to have a chance to have this conversation with you, Nate, because in an episode of Working, you mentioned that you like to make time in your schedule to, I think you said, listen deeply to music. Now, <laughs> yes. yeah. that was in the context of writing criticism, which is your job and one of your creative pursuits. But I wonder if you can divorce the experience from the output and tell me what you mean when you talk about listening deeply. What does it involve? Oh, wow. Yeah. June, this is such a meaningful topic for me. And to be honest, something of an ongoing struggle. <laughs> Before I attempt to answer, I have to express my chagrin at not having read this Rick Rubin book yet. <laughs> you know, I have been devouring the music that he produced for most of my sentient life. So <laughs> this is going on my reading list for sure. Turning to your question, though, there is no one size fits all for meaningful listening. What it means for me really may not work for you. And it means different things to me. So mm. maybe let's establish a scale. All right. So at the far end of the scale is what I'll cheekily call the Maxwell cassette ideal. <laughs> June, do you remember those ads from the early 80s? I sure do. So this is when I am comfortably seated, undistracted, completely dialed in to what's pouring out of my speakers. And yeah, maybe even getting my mind blown. <laughs> The tie and the sunglasses and the leather jacket are optional. <laughs> I am not a true audiophile, but earlier this year, I finally upgraded my system. And I have to say that it made a difference in the quality of my listening. Wow. You know, feeling the sound spatially in a room, it's a really amazing thing. And it mimics what for me is the absolute ideal, which is experiencing live music in real time and real space. Uh. Now, that said, we live in the real world, right? I mean, how many hours do I truthfully have for committed listening? Not nearly enough. Yeah. So then we have to move down the scale a notch to what I'll call the multitasking ear phase. <laughs> and this is, you know, listening while you're driving or washing dishes or folding laundry, you know. 
I found that you can really actually get into the music this way while your hands yeah, yeah. are somewhat mindlessly occupied. It's the next level of distraction where things really start to get compromised. And, and ah. this, is, this is what I'll call distracted listening, where, you know, the music is playing while you're answering emails or doing paperwork or, or actually having a conversation. Yeah. Now, I don't want it to sound like I'm some kind of a purist or a monk or something. <laughs> I, I don't disparage this. I actually do it quite a bit because, you know, you got to live your life. Music is welcome in any circumstance. And, you know, the truth often shines through. But as a rule of thumb, I think the purer your focus, the deeper your listening. And when I'm writing about a piece of music for work, I tend to experience it at every level of the scale. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Can I follow up with what might seem like a trivial question? Does it make a difference to you if you close your eyes when you are listening to music? Well, that's a practice I wouldn't recommend if you're driving. Um, <laughs> but, but no, I do think it makes a difference. To me, though, it's not a qualitative difference. Maybe this is because I, I haven't spent enough time with active meditation, but I don't mm. think I get something extra from listening with my eyes closed. I can tell you, though, that one time in my college years, and, and really only this once... I sat at a graduate composer recital at the Curtis Institute of Music, listening to a contemporary string quartet. And I closed my eyes and experienced a, a kind of shifting, stabbing color field. Whoa. So yeah, synesthesia. June, you'll have to believe me when I say there were no substances involved other than the 12-tone scale. And maybe a Philly cheese state, right? Guilty as charged. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> So how did you come up with these techniques that you've just described? Did you always listen this way? Well, you know, like most people, my listening habits have evolved with the available technology. Uh, yeah. You know, since we opened with Rick Rubin, I'll invite <laughs> you to picture me at age 10, freaking out at a friend's house over a cassette tape of Run DMC's King of Rock on my Sony boombox. <laughs> But then a few years later, I was an early adopter of CDs, you know, very enthusiastic about them. I, I went through, you know, several disc men, either wearing them out or losing them on, you know, planes or what have you. Yeah. Right around the time I moved to New York, I bought my first turntable. This was uh, right around 1999, 2000, well before our current vinyl boom. And, you know, the beautiful thing was at that time... You could actually pick up some great used LPs, like literally off the streets of New York, you know, or get them for just a few bucks in a record store. So I, I actually built part of my collection out of these like super cheap records at that time. And this is a whole other rabbit hole, but I, I really do love the experience of music on vinyl for irksome audiophile reasons, sure, but <laughs> also for a more atmospheric reason, you know. When I listen for pure pleasure, um, there's a good chance that I'm listening to an LP, usually with the gatefold within easy oh. reach. You got to read those stories. You got to look at that track listing, right? I mean, For sure. It, it only yeah. really works with an actual album. Yeah. And as someone who's written liner notes, I have to say, ah. like, you know, there is a place for liner notes. Yeah. Read them, people. Read them. <laughs> got to get that information. Yeah, for real. Thank you, Nate, for sharing that. It's fascinating to me because while I've never been a music critic, I've written lots of reviews and assessments of TV shows, movies, books. And despite that, recently I read a Patreon post by the wonderful historian Hugh Ryan about how he approaches a book review. And mm -hmm. 
Honestly, it made me see the experience of reading in a whole new way. Oh, wow. Here's just a little bit of what Hugh said. I always read the book as soon as possible. I don't read in a rush by any means, but I don't want to linger over it either. I want to have the beginning in my mind as I reach the end. And when I get to the end, I immediately start over, wanting to have the end fresh in my mind as I read the beginning. But this second time, I linger over the things I enjoy or dislike or are confused by, but drawn to, etc. I'll look up the illusions or things I think might be illusions or read or watch or listen to parts of them. During both reads, I highlight and write questions in the margin, but I do it in two different colours, so I always remember what I thought before I knew where it was all going, and what I thought when I knew the entire story. Sometimes two very different opinions. Now, again, Hugh's purpose in reading that way is focused on writing the best possible review, but as I read that, again, I, I felt like I'd been doing book reviews wrong for years, but also... His description struck me as being a true creative practice, a mm. way of deepening your experience of a work of art. And I don't want to read every book that way, probably very few, but it seems genuinely exciting. It does. Although, June, don't don't beat yourself up. I'm sure you've been doing book reviews perfectly <laughs> fine all these years. There is nothing wrong with your process. <laughs> but, you know, Hugh's methodology sounds familiar to me. I know some other book reviewers who do something, you know, analogous or somewhat similar. Mm. Um, and I mm. admire this. I think you're right to call it a creative practice of some kind. For myself, I've I've never been that much of an annotative reader. But I do take notes when I'm listening with the intention of writing critically about a piece of music. Mm. And as I said earlier, unless it's a live performance, I do try to hear something several times in the course of covering it. And, and that's partly because a thing can change as you hear it a third or fourth time. It's not just that you're picking up new details. It's maybe a different resonance or a shifting vibe or, you know, like something reveals itself to you gradually. All right, let's take a short break, but we'll be back to talk more about repetition as a way to engage deeply with art. Hey, listeners, do you have any tips or questions about the creative process? Get in touch and share your advice. You can email us at working at slate.com or even better, call and leave us a message at 304 304- 933-9675. That is 304-933-WORK. And we're back. So, so far, I've been talking as if this were something I've never done. But actually, I realized that for a while, I made it a practice to read the same poem every day for a month. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> I got this idea from the writer Elliot Holt, who in August 2021, wrote a piece for the New York Times called My Secret Weapon Against the Attention Economy. And the first time she did this practice, she said she read Wallace Stevens's The Snowman every day for the entirety of a January. And she said, repetition led to revelation. Every day I noticed new things in the text. By the end of the month, I knew the poem by heart. Mm. And that was very compelling to me. I wanted to do that. And so, as I say, I did it for about six months. I never did learn the poem by heart, although for the most part, I was 
reading poems that kind of resist memorization. Mm-hmm. And I don't even remember all of them. I remember reading and rereading Adrian Rich's Diving into the Wreck and Elizabeth Bishop's One Art, among others. Mm. In a way, though, honestly, the experience was sort of humbling. You know, to my mind, I really grappled with One Art and I, I thought I'd gotten into all its nooks and crannies. And then that same month, the New York Times published one of those poetry deep dives that they sometimes do. And this time it was Dwight Garner and Perul Segal, uh, pretty decent writers about books, both of yeah. them, <laughs> who did an analysis of one art. And let's just say I had not gotten a lot of what they pointed out. <laughs> but, you know, I'm also aware that that's probably the wrong response. I might not in my own reading have fully understood the power of the villanelle, but having spent so much time with the poem, I was better prepared to receive their wisdom as well as the wisdom of the poem. Mm -hmm. And in a recent episode of Working, you mentioned that as an undergrad, you were a poetry major. So I'm guessing that you must have done this kind of deep engagement with a piece of verse quite a bit during Mm. those days. Yeah. Well, first of all, that's such a wonderful practice that you undertook. And what exquisite taste you have, you know, Bishop and Rich, two poetry giants. When I say it like that, it sounds a little bit like a country duo. But, uh, (laughs) you know, I actually missed that analysis that you mentioned in The Times, but it's very sharp and and smartly produced for the web. You're right. I, I did a lot of close reading and analysis in college. And it so happens that one of my old professors, Al Phil Reese, now runs a free 10-week course in modern and contemporary poetry called ModPo. That's one word. And you can find it at modpo.org. You know, I'll say Al has been doing this for a dozen years, and people have enrolled all over the world. You know, coming with an intention similar to the one that you brought, June. Yeah. There's a live interactive webcast every Wednesday, broadcast from the Kelly Writers House at Penn, a place that I love, mm-hmm. along with Zoom office hours run by course TAs, I think just about every day. Now, this year's ModPo is already underway. It began in early September and runs through mid-November. But, you know, that's not a, a deterrent. If you want to dive in, I can't recommend it highly enough. You can, you can get started pretty much any time. Yeah, we should also note that Al is the host of a fantastic podcast, Poem Talk, where he leads a discussion of a poem or two in each episode. And that is also really inspiring to me as as well as great fun and and just really good listening. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I do think that repetition can be revelatory, but... I mean, I guess there are limits on what we can repeat. I mean, this is a practice that lends itself to poems and songs rather than novels and operas, right? Well, I mean, opera connoisseurs would disagree. <laughs> you know? and, and, you know, there, there are certain novels that you can keep returning to, like, you know, like visiting the house of a family friend. <laughs> I think very special and specific novels. But, you know, yeah. we've talked before about the idea of theme and variations, you know, and, and how it plays out in the standard songbook, especially, you know, through jazz interpretations. It's interesting to think about the operatic canon in this way, right? I know this year's Met Opera season in New York included acclaimed new productions of Don Giovanni and Peter Grimes, you know, which are classic works. But, mm-hmm. you know, what I'm talking about there is interpretation more than repetition. You know, you're, you're seeing a yeah. new cast and a new director's vision of the material, you know, rather than queuing up old footage of the classic divas for the umpteenth time. <laughs> 
You know, now you say that, I am reminded for the second time in, in recent working episodes that back when I lived in Seattle and I subscribed to the Seattle Opera, I saw several versions of the Ring Cycle. It was something mm. they did, you know, every couple of years. And it's true that my enjoyment and understanding deepened with everyone I saw. So although it might be more challenging to fit something like the Ring into <laughs> right. a crowded schedule, to yeah. say the least, it's, it's definitely worthwhile. We'll be back with more thoughts about conscious consumption after this. Listeners, I just want to remind you that if you are enjoying working overtime, please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to rate or review the show. It really does help new listeners to find us. And if Overcast is your app of choice, please hit the star to recommend the episode to others. All right, Nate, to bring this back to Rick Rubin and his book, another thing he emphasizes is the importance of noticing. So to Rubin, noticing is the first step and it is not the same as analysis. He says, through detached noticing, awareness allows an observed flower to reveal more of itself without our intervention. And later he adds, Analysis is a secondary function. The awareness happens first as a pure connection with the object of your attention. If something strikes me as interesting or beautiful, first I live that experience. Only afterward might I attempt to understand it. Which, wow. I guess the takeaway there is not to force yourself to struggle for understanding or to profit from the experience of beauty or pleasure. In fact, Later in the book, he explicitly says, quote, our continual quest for efficiency discourages looking too deeply. And I can really relate to that. Yes. So it's like we always want to take something out of an experience instead of just enjoying it. Yeah. Well, there's a deceptively simple truth in what Rick Rubin is saying there. And, and you know, I think it feels connected to and informed by his experience with religious doctrine and transcendental meditation. You know, mm -hmm. he's, he's got a fair amount of experience there. I think it's actually pretty intuitive, though as a critic, you could very easily put the wrong foot forward. Yeah. Basically, I think it's about putting perception before judgment. You let the thing live and allow yourself to experience it before you apply whatever analytic framework helps you to make sense of things. Um, obviously, this is good advice. And, I, you know, I do try to adhere to it, though I'm sure, I'm sure I don't succeed as often as I'd like to admit. Another person I want to mention before we conclude this episode is Rob Walker. Rob was a guest on Working back in August 2022 with his frequent collaborator, Josh Glenn, but Rob also wrote a book and operates a Substack newsletter called The Art of Noticing. And the book's subtitle is 131 Ways to Spark Creativity, Find Inspiration and Discover Joy in the Everyday. So if this is a concept you're interested in exploring further, Rob's book is a great resource. Nate, any last thoughts about listening, reading or creating deeply? Well, June, you, you mentioned The Ring earlier, this wonderful Wagner opera. That actually ties in with what I want to say, um, because we've been talking about dialing in, and I just want to make one quick plea for the so-called difficult watch or listen. Yeah, Critics are 
more familiar with, you know, like sort of saddling up for something like this than I think the, the average person. But, you know, when we talk about being receptive to experience, sometimes that does mean allowing in some discomfort or even some displeasure. Um, and, you know, I'm not here to say eat your vegetables, although vegetables are delicious, <laughs> but rather that sometimes a flavor can come on a little strong or discordant or off-putting. But if you sit with it and disarm your defenses and, and just kind of like let yourself take it on its own terms, you can often get to a rewarding place. That is a great place to leave this episode, I think. But before we go, let me leave you listeners with one last piece of advice. I think you should subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have ideas for things we could do better or questions you'd like us to address, we'd love to hear from you. You can send us an email at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. If you'd like to support what we do, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash working plus. You'll get bonus content, including exclusive episodes of Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood. And you'll be supporting what we do right here on Working. Thanks, as always, to Kevin Bendis and to our series producer, Cameron Drews, who create deeply every time they make an episode of the podcast. We'll be back on Sunday with a brand new episode of Working. And in two weeks, we'll have another Working Overtime. Until then, get back to work. Work.